Today's Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here this morning at IPC, and it's been 10 years. It's hard to believe when you're just having fun, your time passes by, but to see you all again, and uh, I thank you for your prayers and con- condolences in regards to Alba, my wife. It's my first trip without her, 35 years, and so she went to be with the Lord the 3rd of January of this year. So the Bible talks about there's a time to mourn and there's a time to rejoice, and I mourn her absence, although I went in the church office and saw her painting of the French church on the wall, so that reminded me that she has left a legacy, and uh, that uh, the support of family and friends and people from all around the world have been very important for me during this time. So it's good to be here, and I chose a verse that is very important for me and certainly has given me hope and consolation, the Romans 8.28. So let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was January 18, 2010, when Bill Thong, uh, an amateur bowler, was just three rolls away from perfection. Three perfect games of 900 points. Now, in the history of bowling, there have only been 21 perfect series. After bowling 30 perfect strikes, Bill got the ball, he walked up, and he rolled another strike and then another in frame 35. The crowd in the bowling alley went wild, but something was wrong. Two frames back, Bill had begun to feel very dizzy and sweating profusely, but he was just one roll away from history. So he put the ball up to his chest, he took his five steps his normal way, released the ball perfectly. People started actually clapping before the ball hit the pins. That's how perfect the roll was. It curved exactly as it was supposed to. It made exact contact with the pins, precisely at the right spot. The pins flew, the crowd cheered, but number 10 pin wobbled and wobbled, but settled back on its base. 899, one short of perfection. Well, heartbroken, Bill headed home. And as he headed home, he began to be dizzy again, as he had been in the bowling. And he staggered into the bathroom, he vomited. The walls continued to spin around, and he fell asleep. And when he awoke the next morning, he'd realized that he had suffered a stroke. Later, in 2010, he had open-heart surgery, just 46 years of age. Now, he survived what 70% of the people would not have, But the doctors told him the only thing that saved his life on the night of 899 was that the 10 pin stayed up. Had that last pin fallen, Bill said his body, already in the midst of a stroke, would have pushed his blood pressure even higher and that would have killed him instantaneously. What he thought was the worst thing that could happen, the most awful thing, after rolling 899 was that the last pin didn't fall right. What he thought was the worst thing that could happen to him is actually what saved his life. And sometimes the things that happen that are bad, we see them from our perspective. But God has a different perspective. Now, all of us have had bad things happen to us. Now, some bad things are the result of national or international crises. I mean, we all went through the pandemic, didn't we? So we have those kinds of things. 
Some bad things are the result of bad decisions, bad conduct. But you listen today, you'll discover that because Romans 8.28, Christians have a unique way of processing life when bad things happen to them. One student of Romans 8.28 put it this way, the truth of Romans 8.28 can change the way you think. It can provide corresponding moods and emotions and outlook. In times, it can even change your personality and alter your circumstances in life. It can turn troubled souls into people of confidence and good cheer. It's a secret, and it's a resiliency, and it's irrepressible joy. And the promise, you see, is not only for back then, but the promise is for you today and for me today. So um, I mean to look at this, uh, this verse, examine it, uh, and I look back on my life and I think, well, you know, some of the most important things in life are really pretty simple, aren't they? I mean, some of the basics, as we say. So we make them complicated. We even make them profound at times. But it's true of this verse because this verse is one of the simplest verses in the Bible. I mean, if you've made up of the words, a lot of one-cylinder words, 25 words in Romans 8:28, and only three of them are more than one syllable long. And these one-syllable wor words are put together in such a way and they're kind of compressed in such a way that the greatest truth comes out through Scripture. So we're going to look at them. I'm indebted to David Jeremiah and Skip Hitzer and John Piper for uh, their interpretation and application of this, these passages. Let's look first at a context of Romans 8.28. The theme of Romans is the gospel. In the first few chapters of Romans, we see that, however, it's sort of a downward trajectory because Romans reveals the sort of, you know, the bad news and the good news. First, the wrath of God before it reveals the grace of God. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul writes about being unrighteous to being under God's judgment. All have sinned, religious and non-religious, Jew and Greek, the chapters four and five give us the fix. The fix is faith. If we simply believe like Abraham, he's the prime example in the Bible, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, the person who believes is justified or made right with God. That's the theme of those two chapters. And then chapters six, seven, and eight say that there is no condemnation. We are adopted as God's children by faith. So we are free from the law. So we're at the pinnacle, we're at the top of the mountain and we're looking at the panorama now of God's comprehensive care for his creatures. And this uh, is like a jewel, so we're gonna look at the different facets, actually six facets of God's promise. Number one, this is the certainty of God's promise. Look at the phrase, the first part of it. It says, and we know, stop there, and we know. Now, there's a ring of definiteness, isn't there, from Paul's language. He's, he's not scratching his head saying, I think, uh, or I hope, or uh, maybe. He says, and we know. Kenneth Weiss, who's a Greek scholar and translator of the New Testament, said it this way in the New American Standard Bible. The phrase should be translated, and we know with absolute knowledge. We know with absolute knowledge. 32 times Paul uses that expression in his epistles five times in the book of Romans, and we know, we know the certainty of God's promise. 
Now, there are a lot of things in life that we do not know. Just like in the illustration with the children. We don't know oftentimes how to pray. So the Holy Spirit, you know, helps us out with that. We don't know how we ought to act in certain instances. I remember in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk, he wondered why God would allow all these things to happen to his countrymen, the Israelites. And he said, how long, O Lord? How long? Why are you silent about this? What is happening? James chapter 4 says, we do not know the things that are going to happen tomorrow. Or the patriarch Isaac said, I do not know the, the day of my death. Jesus said, you don't know the hour of the Lord's coming. So there are a lot of things the Bible says that we do not know. But there are certain things that we do know or we should know. And one of them is, I think this is the most important, never question in your mind that God loves us. God loves us. God cares for us. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And Paul begins this verse by speaking about God's care. And we know. Listen, dear believer, never abandon what you do know because of what you don't know. There are certain things that you don't know. You can't figure them out. You don't see why. During those times, gravitate to the things that you do know, that you absolutely know, over those things that you don't know. You can be a no-so believer rather than just a so-so believer. You should be an exclamation point instead of a kind of a question mark with your head hanging over. So we don't need a hope so, a think so, a, a maybe so salvation. We need a no so salvation. And this first point is the certainty, the first facet. Now take the gym and we'll turn it a little bit further to look for the next one. And the certainty then is followed by the comprehensiveness of God's promise. God's promise is, it says, we know that all things, all things together work together for good. And I can't think of a statement that brings more assurance, more joy and confidence into the Christian life than that. Now be careful, it doesn't say that we know that all things are good in and of themselves, because what would be absurd statement in view of the natural disasters that happen in the world or human tragedies. Nor does it say, well, God will keep us from all bad things. I know there's some teaching about, uh, about that. They call it the health and wealth gospel. You sort of name it and claim it. God is going to always keep you, give you prosperity. He's going to heal you from every disease. We know that that doesn't happen. That doesn't gel with reality. If, we were, if it were so, then people would be converting for all the wrong reasons to Christ. The Bible never promises that. It doesn't say some things work together for good. That would be easier to believe, I think, if it did that. It, nor does it say that most things work together for good or that all good things work together for good or all prayed about things work together for good. It says all things. In the Greek, the word for all is panta. Panta, and guess what it means? It means all things. All things literally means all things. No qualifications, no limitations, no confinement. The point making is that nothing is beyond the overruling and the overriding scope of God's providential love. Now, what is included in all things in the context here? We heard some ports of the scripture read, but 
Paul said, if we suffer with Christ, we shall also share in his glory. So it speaks of suffering in the present world. In verse 23, it says, we groan within ourselves, will we await the resurrection of our bodies? Is certainly that's I've been holding on to, knowing that one day I will have a resurrection body as Alba will. So we know that those include things like suffering, the groaning that we face in this world, even the creation is groaning. William Newell writes, dark things, bright things, happy things, sad things, sweet things, bitter things, times of prosperity, times of adversity, all things. But don't misread this verse. The idea is not that all things happen to work out for good on their own. The idea this verse is behind all things is God, who is the prime mover, who's the cause of all things. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates it this way, for we know that God causes all things to work, and we really see that it's in, that is in the active voice and it's in the present tense, so it speaks of the ongoing activity of God to orchestrate things. The verse is better translated, we know with absolute certainty that God, on an ongoing basis, is causing everything to work together for good who those who love God. So this is a statement not of fate, <laughs> here you are stuck with it, it's a statement of faith, of belief, that God is providentially overruling in all things according to his plan. Now there's a related verse, another popular verse I think you probably love as well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. It doesn't matter what's going on in your path, what are the obstacles in your path, if your path is straight or if it was twisted, he will direct your path. Now, I think most everybody here has heard about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome. It's been popularized in these last 15 years. It's something that happens when a person is exposed to a traumatic event. And sometimes that experience will can exhibit certain kinds of behaviors and certain kinds of attitudes, so-called PTS syndrome or disorder. But in the world of psychology, they've tapped into another condition. They call it PTG, post-traumatic growth. And what they have noted is that the positive psychological change experience may be the result of adversity. It's due to a shift in, in thinking in relating to the world. It's a, it's a result of the traumatic event. But according to this field of experts, two-thirds of the people, in a sense of grow through traumatic events, and, and less people you know, have the PTSD. So we see the cohesiveness of God's promise. We know all things work together. Stop here. Work together, two words in English, one word in Greek. And the Greek is synergeo, the word from which we get synergy or synergism, synergeo. And it's the interaction or cooperation of two things or more. And it's the working together elements that produce the result greater than the sum. It's not, it's not that you have all these things randomly happening, but it's God superintends the mixture of all things so that it's the right combination. Now, I have a tomato plant in my garden, and I love to eat tomatoes. 
but before I eat them, I put poison on them. Oh, I didn't die. No, I'm here. Uh, we don't call it poison. We call it salt, sodium chloride. But you know that sodium and chloride in their pure elemental forms, sodium chloride will kill you. It's poisonous. It'll kill you. However, in the right combination, sodium chloride is actually beneficial. Salt is beneficial. It enhances the taste. It brings out flavor. It pre preserves food. Uh, it could kill you in one form, but in another combination, it can be beneficial. God can do that. There are certain things in life in and of themselves that are horrible, that are bad, that are terrible. They're no good. But God, in his chemistry lab, when he puts the crucible of omnipotence and mixes it just right, he can give us back to us actually healing and helpful experiences. So Paul can say all things can work together. That's God's chemistry. Now I want you to compare two different views of the world. One is from an Old Testament character named Jacob, and one is from a New Testament character named Paul. Uh, bad things happened in both of their lives. We see Jacob, remember his story? His son was kidnapped. He thought his son was dead. That was Joseph we heard read earlier. There was a famine going on in the land and his sons were misbehaving. He had a lot of bad things happening to him. And the Apostle Paul had bad things happen to him. He was falsely accused. He was put into prison. He was in a Caesarean prison for a couple years. Then he went to Rome and he was going to stand trial in front of, of Nero. He had all sorts of bad things happen. Jacob, when bad things happened to him, he said, all things are against me. Now, when all things happen to Paul, Paul says, all things work for good for those who love God. Two different viewpoints. And I've met believers who say, everything's, everybody's out to get me, or things are not going right in my life, or all things work together for good. Well, what's the difference? The difference is the perspective, the perspective based on eternity in Romans 8, 28, it must be interpreted the internal perspective and not the temporal perspective. Because you're looking around saying, gee, I don't get this. I don't know why would God would let this happen. And, it, and there you are. Now, there's a law in physics that basically says energy in the universe is never lost. It's always transformed from one state into the next state. And I think it's the same way in our experience. I think nothing is lost entirely and that God uses that pain to accomplish his purpose. You may have heard the story of Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Alka Indians in South America. Well, now there is a group of missionaries that planned and they prayed and they strategized. Uh, they had a heart to reach out to those natives in Ecuador. And one day the mission team and Jim Elliott and others, they went there to share the gospel to those people. They were all murdered. They were killed. And when that happened, that was pretty significant to the missionary community. The sacrifice seemed like a senseless tragedy. It looked like a total waste of human life. And that's because they were interpreting it from a not eternal point of view, but temporal point of view. However, in God's chemistry lab, there was a purpose. You see, each of those tribes people who killed those missionaries became a Christian. And the gospel was planted in that tribal culture, and to this day, it is still th thriving there in that culture. 
Now, I grew up in Miami in the 1960s and actually met the man who put the spear into Jim Elliott. He was a believer, and now he's with the Lord in heaven. And I can just picture Jim Elliott and these other missionaries meeting with their murderers, all standing around the throne looking back on the event and saying, wow, this worked out for good. Wouldn't you agree on that? So we see in Romans 8.28 that it's always interpreted in light of the eternal perspective and not just the temporal. So we have certainty. We have the comprehensiveness, the cohesion of God's promise. Let's turn that diamond a little bit more, and we have the culmination of God's promise. We know that all things work together for good. Let's consider those two words, for good. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things work together for our comfort, because they don't always. Certain experiences are very uncomfortable. It doesn't say that all things kind of work together for our ease, because that doesn't happen either, or for our prosperity, or even our physical health. We know this, though, that God is always working towards the supreme good, as God defines good. 50 years ago, a young woman uh, at the time named Joni Erickson, now Joni Erickson Tata, was paralyzed by diving into the Chesapeake Bay. And for 50 years, she has been chained to a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. You might have seen pictures of her because she paints with a brush in her mouth because she can't hold it in her hands. An amazing woman. For 50 years, a vibrant believer in God, believer in God's plan and in Jesus Christ, her faith was not shaken, and she was asked to ask the question, why suffering? Why would God allow this suffering? And I would be interested to hear her answer. I mean, as somebody who's been around the block, so to speak, 50 years paralyzed. What do you think she said? Why would God allow suffering? And listen to her profound answer. She said, and I quote, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's profound. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So the Christian is not naive about suffering and pain and heartache and tragedy. We know what Jesus says. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Job, if you remember, in the Old Testament, suffered greatly. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And we know that we're not automatically healed as a Christian believer. We know sometimes God is with us in the storm and calms the storm. Usually, he calms us as we continue in the storm. Most typically, the storm rages, but he's promised to be with us in the boat. Jerry Bridges writes this, God never allows pain without purpose in the lives of his children. He never allows Satan or circumstances or ill-intended persons to affect us unless he uses that affliction for our own good. God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for good, our ultimate good, the good of conforming us to the likeness of his son. So did you hear that last part? God has a goal in conforming us to the likeness of his son. So I want you to see this in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, why is this happening to me, God, we ask? I want to make you like Jesus, that's why. I want you to have a life that's sweeter and better, uh, richer and deeper. So that's the good I look back on, even 
In trials, I believe God has my highest good in mind. So there are parts that I still have questions about in experiences, tragedy in my life. What what about this thing? Why did it have to go through that? So I don't get it all, but I'm okay with that. Do you know what James said? We should even get to this point. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. Oh, come on. I mean, who do you know that does that? I'm so happy because I'm going through a trial. (laughs) Does that sound realistic? But it says the trial of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete and entirely lacking in nothing. So God has something going on here. I've always liked that illustration of a simple bar of steel. A bar of steel worth $5 when you make it into horseshoes is now worth $12. If you say take that same $5 ball of steel and make it into needles, hypodermic needles, sewing needles, now it's worth $3,500. When you take it and make it into balance springs for fine watches like they do in Switzerland, that $5 bar of steel now is worth $300,000. What makes a $5 bar of steel worth $300? What increases the value? And I'll tell you what, heat, beating, twisting, more beating, more twisting, the more it goes through with all those contortions, the more valuable it becomes. And I think like us, that's what sort of makes us more valuable too in our experience. Trials of our faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work in you. Well, that's the culmination of God's promise. Let's twist that diamond a little bit more and look at uh, Romans 8.28, the condition of God's promise. The condition of God's promise. Uh, Here's the audience. To those that love God. Now, I know that most of you do. You're here today. Those who are called according to his purpose. So we can take that verse 28 and quote part of the verse, just the part we like, like all things work together for good, but it's not given to everybody or anybody, but it's given to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, for believers. That's just the simple definition of a Christian, isn't it? From two different directions, from the human direction, for those who love God, And from the divine direction to those who are called according to his purpose. So God's definition of a Christian is you and I are called according to his purpose. Now our typical definition of a Christian believer is that we love the Lord. That describes kind of our attitude and our behavior. The fact that we love the Lord is proof that we are called according to his purpose. But it's the same truth from two different directions, simply describing a believer. So This condition is to be a believer, you know, for this to happen. Now, there are many biblical illustrations we already heard about, Joseph read in the scripture this morning, that give illustration and principle from this Romans 8.28. I can think of other ones, Noah, think of of even Jacob, uh, Moses, Esther, certainly Job, David. I can think of things in the New Testament, the census that brought Jesus to Bethlehem. I can think of the conflict between Paul and Barnabas. Sometimes there's conflict, you know, in churches or mission organizations. So I want you to see that there are three different examples that I'm going to just finish up with that that follow this. Who are the examples? 
All of them are very famous examples, two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The first one is Joseph. He was the young man who was misunderstood, who was the victim of, of jealousy among his brothers, remember? And Joseph was, uh, had bad thing after bad things done to him. He was sold to the Midianites, who then sold him to the Egyptians. He was put as a servant in the home and accused by Potiphar of rape. Joseph was thrown into prison by Pharaoh, and he was left there. So we could say bad things happened to, to him. But when he met his brothers and revealed who he was, I'm the one you sold into slavery, and they began shaking in their boat. I can imagine they're saying, yeah, we're toast now. Here's, here's Joseph going to get even with us. But, uh, but they didn't. Joseph said, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people alive today. So Romans 8.28 is what we see in Genesis from Joseph's point of view. And as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, here's the truth of those bad things. If Joseph were not a slave, he never would have been able to interpret Pharaoh's dream, which means he never would have been elevated to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, which at that time was the whole world civilization. Those were bad things that happened. They were synergized by a loving God. So Joseph would say, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the first example. And the second example is when the Jews went into exile in Babylon. The Babylonians came to Jerusalem, they sacked the temple, they burned the temple, they killed people, they took thousands of prisoners to Babylon. And it was wicked, it was horrible. But Jeremiah wrote a letter to the captives. He wanted them to know that God was behind this with some redemptive purpose. And he wrote, I know the thoughts I have for you, thoughts of good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Probably you know and love that verse also, but you have to know the context. When their evil things were happening, God had something up his sleeve. He was going to work it together to give them a future and a hope. And so we can claim that in our circumstance. So Joseph, the captivity of Israel. Now the third example that I think is the best of all for Romans 8.28 is the cross of Jesus Christ. What could be worse than killing God? Nothing. That was the worst day in history. Jesus was falsely accused in a kangaroo court. He was scourged. He was put on a cross. That was the most painful of executions. And yet, it was the best thing that ever happened. That's why we call it Good Friday. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, in fact, Peter, interpreting the event of the crucifixion, he says it this way. He mixes both human responsibility of the people and God's sovereignty. He says in Acts, Jesus being delivered by the purposes and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified him. So yes, there's culpability to those of you who've done this. It was wrong what you did. But God foreordained it and planned it. He gave his son so that his son would give his life for us. What was so bad was really so good for those who believe. Believe and that's enough. Faith in him is enough to get us from earth to heaven. John Stott wrote these words. He said, I could never believe in a God except for the cross. And he's got a good book on the cross. It's the real world of pain. How could one worship a God who is immune to pain? 
And then he said, many times I've been in Asia and I've looked at the huge reclining Buddhas, kind of reclining in repose, his eyes closed, his lips wistfully posed, a little smile, obviously aloof, obviously detached from the pain of this world. I closed my eyes and I looked at the cross and I see Jesus hanging in misery with stakes in his hands and his feet, blood flowing down his face, and he said, that's the God for me. Our suffering becomes more manageable in light of the cross and not a Buddha in repose. Jesus felt it. He, uh, he experienced it. He, he knows something about how bad things can be made into good for those who trust in him. That's Romans 8.28. There's one more facet that I want you to look at, and it's given you five already, and that's the continuation of God's promise. I want you to see that the big picture here. Look in, in verses 29 to 30. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be born as one among many. Moreover, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we get the wide panorama, the big picture. We go from eternity past to eternity in the future, from predestination and election all the way to glorification. So these are the five golden links in that chain of God's sovereign promise. And we see that, and we look at them, God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Those five conditions, eternity past, eternity future. But get this, four of them are in the past tense. One of them hasn't been happened yet. I mean, he foreknew us he, in, in advance. He chose us in Christ. He called us. And when he called us, he justified us, made us right with God and when we became a Christian. So the last one is, whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, guess what? That hasn't happened yet. I mean, you look at me, I'm not glorified. <laughs> Neither are you. So, I mean, that's something we're looking forward to. Getting like Jesus is sanctification or becoming holy, but we're not glorified. But you can see that God writes in the past tense, glorified too, because God is so sure that that's going to happen. Your glorification is as certain to God as choosing you from the foundation of the world, so that it is the continuation of God's promise. There was a father who was putting a, a puzzle together with his son, and uh, it, there were dark pieces, there were light pieces of the puzzle, Big pieces, small pieces, the boy was trying to figure it out. He couldn't figure it out, so he finally gave up in frustration. Well, his father came into the room, he was whistling and smiling, and he took the puzzle and put the, the, the pieces in it to complete the puzzle. And the boy was very frustrated. He said, I don't get it. I mean, how could you do it when I couldn't do it? And the father said, I know what the picture was like all the time. I looked at the front of the box, and I saw the picture, and I saw the puzzle, and son, you only saw the pieces. Well, right now, you might be holding some dark pieces or in your, your computer, a dark pixel on the screen of your future. You don't know why this piece. I mean, where do you go with this? Why would God allow this to happen? Well, God sees the whole picture. Are you okay with that? And I think that's the question we all need to ask ourselves. Are we okay knowing that God knows? Maybe you don't know. You can't figure it out, but... God has got the big picture in mind. Are you okay with that? Because Job, who lost family, health, and his bank account, he was okay with that. And what did he say? 
He wasn't okay with the bad stuff. I mean, that was painful. But he ended up saying this, though you slay me, I will trust you. I don't get it. I didn't understand, and I don't know why, but I don't need to know why as long as I know you. Because I know you, and you love me. Let me just close with a quote from John Piper on this verse. He says, outside of Romans 8.28 are a thousand substitutes for this promise. But once you walk through the door of love in this massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability, depth, freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. Something happens to your life that you didn't expect and you don't know what to do. You just say, I don't understand, but I believe it. Everything that happens to you is for your own good. If the waves roll against you, it only speeds your ship towards the port. If the lightning and the thunder comes, it only clears the atmosphere and promises your soul's health. You gain by loss. You grow healthy in sickness. You live by dying. You were made rich in love. Could you ask for a better promise? It is better to have all things that should work for my good than all things should be as I wish them to have been. All might work for my pleasure, and yet it might not be for my good. All things don't always please me. They always benefit me. This is the best promise in the Bible. This is the best promise in life. Amen.